Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette. And this is episode 8. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this episode, we'll be talking about the myths and true history of affirmative action, the case Plyler versus Doe, which ruled that undocumented students have a right to K-12 public education, and the recent win in Arizona regarding the ethnic studies ban. And we also wanted to thank our newest Patreon, Lucy Olson. We appreciate your support. Before we start, we just wanted to quickly mention what's going on in Texas with Hurricane Harvey. We know that I set up checkpoints to catch any undocumented immigrants who were fleeing the hurricane. And we wanted to acknowledge that and talk about just mention how horrible it is and more proof of the terrible society we some t- we live in. And we also wanted to note uh, that even though we're not going to do a full segment on this, we wanted to note that President Trump uh, pardoned... That was the first time I called him President Trump. That was weird. Trump <laughs> pardoned uh, Joe Arpaio, who was the sheriff of Maricopa County during the time in which Arizona had the Show Me Your Papers law. Uh, which essentially allowed for racial profiling to occur. Um, We've tweeted a bunch of stuff and put stuff up on Instagram about Joe Arpaio's terrible practices, and it's a real sting to the Latinx community that he was pardoned. And so we just wanted to mention that as well. Yeah, so you can see more of of our thoughts on all this on social media. But for this episode, we wanted to start off talking about affirmative action. I think... A lot of us maybe also sting at when we're talking about affirmative action or when we're when we hear affirmative action spoken about. Yvette, you and I have previously talked kind of about our own experiences. So what has been your experience with affirmative action and not just affirmative action itself, but the dialogue around it? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about affirmative action because I've experienced very hurtful and hateful comments at the hands of white people regarding my admission into Yale University. And I wanted to take the time to share the story of my supposed childhood best friend who was a white woman who in high school for a variety of reasons just became a very hateful, ignorant, bigoted person um, and came to resent me because of the successes that I had in high school and eventually told me that the only reason that I got into Yale was because of affirmative action. And this was despite the fact that I had overcome so much and that I had been, you know, like had taken the most AP and honors classes in my high school, had been the valedictorian, had done extracurricular sports, had been a leader in the religious community, had, you know, that's like just like a few of the things off the top of my head. And this white woman was like, had mediocre grades and mediocre test scores and was upset that she hadn't gotten into Yale. And this is actually sadly like a really common occurrence. I think that the way in which a lot of white people interact with me is oftentimes being surprised that I got into Yale. They get very pressed about it because I think they must understand that they've had structural advantages that I didn't, and I still got farther than they did. And so I just experienced so much resentment and animosity from white people who are upset that I succeeded in a way that they didn't. Yeah, that's not surprising to me at all. Cause I w- so I went to a small liberal arts college, which does not at all have the name recognition of Yale. And I got it to some degree, so I can't imagine. And I feel like I see it sometimes now when I tell people I went to Stan- I go to Stanford Law. Mm-hmm. So I, I know what you're talking about. But even at, I mean, the, my small liberal arts college was, it's a top 20 school for sure. And 
definitely students there and professors and administrators were often because I was a posse scholar. If y'all don't know about the Posse Foundation, I definitely recommend looking into it. It's an amazing foundation doing amazing work. And basically they provide full tuition scholarships to students to uh, partner schools and my school is a partner and the school pays the the full tuition scholarship posse just finds the students and it's leadership based but constantly at my school it was they were always trying to make it seem like it's not leadership based like it has to do with diversity and the numbers and just were there so that the school can have a higher percentage of students of color present and, and that's not unique at all, I feel. I feel like that's a common experience. And, and so that's part of why we really wanted to talk about this because there's a lot of myths surrounding affirmative action and it's hurtful. It's hurtful because like we talked about in previous episodes, some of this is internalized. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, that it's that there's a lot of myths around affirmative action. And I think the first one that we should tackle is whether or not white people have benefited from affirmative action-like programs or if there have been uh, subs- like similar subsidies that the government has given white people historically? And the answer is yes. Like, very clearly. Let me put this in one sentence on a bumper sticker for y'all. White people have been the biggest recipients of affirmative action. So, let's start with the New Deal and we all talk about the New Deal because it's, it was famous and it's really highly praised because it's seen as this social program that really like invested in people because it introduced minimum wage, social, social security, unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation. So it did all this, right? But agriculture and domestic workers, so household workers, were excluded. So all other types of workers could access minimum wage and Social Security and unemployment. But if you worked in like fields, if you worked cleaning houses, you were excluded. You didn't have access to these benefits. So who did that exclude? Like who who filled these jobs? Right. We don't even need to say it. Like it's so obvious. Right. And it wasn't just in the... Oh, and we did also want to note that we started with the New Deal, um, but really, I mean, we could have just gone back to the founding of this country, but we only have 15 minutes for this segment. Um, So also uh, in housing, there was also very similar benefits that were given exclusively to white people. The Federal Housing Administration had a home mortgage insurance program, and it actually had a similar one specifically for veterans of World War II that Cynthia's going to talk about in a bit. Essentially, the government insured mortgages that made the terms that banks were offering mortgages much, much more affordable for people, and so it just opened up the, the number of people that could actually have mortgages. And the emphasis in the programs was that They were given to uh, families that were in quote-unquote racially stable neighborhoods, and what that meant was all white neighborhoods and even like neighborhoods that were not likely to have people of color move into them. And then also single-family homes in the suburbs, and, um, you know, like the suburbs at the time was characterized by white flight. The suburbs were all predominantly white, and the legacy of that is still felt today because I think less than 1% of black people live in suburbs. Uh, And so obviously who most benefited? White people. And actually the FHA was, the Federal Housing Administration was explicitly against providing subsidies in neighborhoods where black people lived or were likely to move, like I said before. And a lot of the, the neighborhoods were called Levitt Towns after the, the real estate developer, William Levitt, who created the designs for them. And it's really telling that he said, he once said, we can solve a housing problem or we can solve a racial problem, but we cannot combine the two. Uh, and so this is, again, just like another really explicit reminder of the ways in which white people have been given immense, immense amount, um, immense amounts of benefits from the government and this is actually how intergenerational wealth is created like being able to pass down a piece of property to your child it gives them such a leg up yeah i had never heard that quote before i didn't i don't think i heard levittown's either but that's so interesting i didn't know that 
I do know, though, the GI Bill that we mentioned earlier, that was it's it's like heralded as this really great program. And for a lot of reasons, like it invested 95 billion into the education and job training and starting businesses and purchasing homes of soldiers returning from World War Two. But the great majority of all of that went to white veterans. And I have an example, which I there's a lot of examples of how disproportionate those funds were invested. But again, it's it's easy to imagine the South having these policies. So I wanted to pick the example from New York and northern New Jersey. So in New York and northern Jersey alone, right, there were 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill, which was supporting home, like home purchases, right? So 67,000, less than 100, less than 100 of those were for non-whites. I... That's just staggering. I find this statistic really upsetting also because uh, the black veterans that equally fought in World War II, despite you know, that fought for a country that did not love them, didn't get to receive this benefit. And I think also it's important to point out that like with these ideas about make America great again or when people say things like, wow, why can't we just go back to the 1950s when things were so great? What they're talking about is going back to a time period in which white people received, like white people solely received government benefits. Yeah, and this, all of this, because we're talking about the New Deal, just going off our last episode reminds me that Roosevelt is another one that gets too much credit. Exactly. Lincoln and FDR, two people who get too much credit. And so the last thing that we wanted to talk about um, before kind of transitioning into talking about affirmative action in the university context, we did also want to point out that education, that there's a history of white people benefiting in the education sphere. In 1948, there were only around 30,000 people enrolled in college in um, New York State. And then in the 1970s, there was this huge initiative to increase the number, to increase the, uh, or to expand the public university system. And so by the 1970s, this number had reached 35,000 people, all of whom were mostly white. And it's important to note that this expansion of the public university system was back when you could actually go to a public university and not leave with immense amounts of debt. Like it's such a different time period from the one in which millennials grew up in of like needing to shoulder tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of debt just to get a college education. Uh, And then it's mostly white people that benefited from that affordable public education system. Uh, And then again, it's like also why I think it's really ironic when I hear baby boomers talking shit about millennials because they went to a school during a perfect and cheap time to enroll in college. Like you had it way easier than millennials. And then, yeah, just interestingly enough, uh, the children of European and Asian immigrants were the primary beneficiaries of these new policies, primarily because of the wages and that their parents earned and small businesses that their parents earned. Um, But then, like, also we need to think about what Cynthia mentioned about who got to benefit from the, the, like, minimum wage and the Social Security benefits that were passed during the New Deal, right? So all of these things are interconnected and show how um, intergenerational wealth is accumulated and then also how generations of people are are, um, left behind in, in these policies. So I think we should just now transition to talking about what like what we think of affirmative action or what like how it's talked about how we hear about it and like what are the connotations that we hear when we hear the word the phrase affirmative action from how i understand it it's always thought about as something for minorities like specifically for black and brown folk and it always feels like people are are talking about it or using affirmative action to substitute for talent and ability. And I'm using air quotes for that. And that all goes to like this great myth that we have about bootstrapping in the United States. And so it's kind of going to that people of color need affirmative action because we're not smart enough or hardworking enough to get into the schools or to get loans without affirmative action. But in actuality, like in reality, in history, it's, that white people have been the only recipients of affirmative action since God knows when. 
and so like they've done that so much that they've siphoned off all the resources for themselves and it's set up a system so that everyone else has it so much harder to get into school and get those loans and it's not because we're not smart enough or hardworking enough it's because they set up a system to work for them so like when Sessions and Becky from Texas talk about the unfairness of affirmative action, it's so hypocritical. They've benefited from it. Their families have secured generational wealth because of it. But now that people of color expect the same like the same type of action from the government, now it's a problem. Like, no, the government is not just for white people. It's for people of color, too. And it just... To me, it reminds me that white needs to stop being the default and the norm. I agree, and I just think it's especially important to underscore your point about Becky from Texas and how she thinks that the system is unfair because, again, like I was mentioning with you know my former friend earlier and also Abigail Fisher, who is the plaintiff in the Fisher versus Texas case, like these people just want to be re- rewarded for white mediocrity and they want to continue living in a world where you know, they're mediocre, but just because they're white, they get these benefits. Like if you look at the resume of Abigail Fisher, she had average grades and average test scores. Like there's no reason why she should feel indignant about the fact that she didn't get in to the University of Texas. Yeah. And I think that's so true. Like the amount of my uh, white mediocre people in positions of power is really staggering. (laughs) But I just really, really want like people of color to to stop to not internalize this message right because we're constantly receiving the message that like we need affirmative action because we're not good enough and that's not the case that is not at all the case so Yvette can you just like tie this back a little bit to what we were talking about in episode four and the constructions of race because I think they're so intertwined yeah, so I think it's like something that what I found most interesting about the research that we did surrounding the mortgage subsidies was that the mortgage subsidies were in a lot of ways what allowed Italians and Irish people to be considered white because in the earlier half of the 20th century it's actually really interesting if you look at character like if you look at how Italians and Irish people were depicted and they were characterized caricaturized and um, were depicted as if they were a different race as if they were not white but then these housing the mortgage subsidies were not discriminatory against Irish and Italian people they were also granted these mortgages and so then were also allowed to move into they were allowed to move out of their uh, inner city neighborhoods that had been predominantly Italian and Irish in the city and were allowed to move to the suburbs and through that move and through the social capital that they gained from these suburbs, then that is also that's like what allowed for them to be perceived as white or was at least a major part of that. And I think it's just, you know, in episode four, we were talking about how the law constructs race and ideas of race. And uh, that specific example is just another one to think about if you all were still thinking about how the law constructs race. Affirmative action, like I know just to kind of segue so affirmative action i know is like this phrase that we use a lot but breaking it down like why like what makes these things affirmative action i think that both exemplify like i think we mentioned this a little bit earlier so i'm not going to go too much into detail but that both exemplify the benefits that the government has given to white people and kept away from people of color um, and then it just explains why people of color should now benefit from a similar kind of subsidy. And then again, it's like this is how white people talk about affirmative action, as if the government or universities are just making things easier for people of color. And it's so wrong to not recognize the history of the federal government and universities making things so much easier for white people. Yeah. Can you get into a little bit more about like the university context of affirmative action? Because I know we had some cases here in California. Yes. Yeah, so there the regents of the University of California versus Baki. It's kind of like the big affirmative action case. And I think it's important to note the holding in that case because a lot of people think that there's a racial quota system. Like, you know, this university needs to admit 70 black students and 70 Latinx students. And that's absolutely not how it works. That's actually illegal as determined by Baki. What is, is allowed is just for universities to consider race and its admission process as one of many factors. So other factors that can also be considered are like what neighborhood you grew up in, what resources your school had, 
whether or not your parents went to that university, whether or not you are an athlete. There's actually lots of things that people could consider quote unquote unfair about the admissions process, but we don't talk about those. Yeah. What pisses me off the most is the legacy. Like I, uh, like it just, it just bothers me that like, Oh, if your parents or a family member of yours went to the school, you get like a brownie point and your application is looked at more favorably. Like that just seems so unfair. Yeah, because it's like the you that's a benefit that you receive solely because of how you were born. Whereas like race being considered in admissions is about recognizing the struggle that you had to deal with as as your like yourself in your personal life, but also the generations before you, like we were talking about earlier. What was that article you were telling me about? I I like read a little bit about. It. I swear I thought the percentage of legacy students was actually a lot higher. But I guess it's it's like at 30 percent. Yeah. Harvard. Uh, this is an article in 2015. But at that point, Harvard's legacy admission was 30 percent. And Yale's was like 20 to 25. Um, and then uh, the article that also said that Ivy League schools admit more legacy students than black students, which is wild. Yeah, that just again, when folks then like turn around and complain about affirmative action, it's like, well, you're getting a benefit because of who your parents are. But you want to complain about affirmative action based on race like I don't know so should we I mean I think our conversation makes the answer to this very obvious but in case anyone's still wondering should we talk about whether or not affirmative action is a good thing yes just very clearly yes affirmative action is a good thing and for me personally I think the answer is so clearly yes because that's what I see the government the role of the government being I think the government is exists to serve its people to organize our society and to make sure that you know folks have opportunities and it's like a well-running society in which folks can thrive so it makes sense to me that if if someone if a group of people that you can identify are having a harder time getting into uh, schools or getting loans for whatever reasons whether it's the history whether it's like the way the society is currently structured it makes sense to me that the government would step in and step up to help that group of people so i see affirmative action as like the natural role of the government that's what it should be doing i agree and i think that i like just speaking about the university context i think that actually and this is an argument that was made in baki but it can be made in a problematic way, but I think that everyone benefits from having classmates that have different experiences than you. Like, I think that part of the reason why I learned so much about the world that I did at Yale was because of the fact that, for example, like my roommates were a part of the literal 1%. I had never met someone who had that kind of wealth before, and it just helped me sharpen my class analysis so much more. That's just one example of the ways in which like meeting people who have different experiences than you helps you learn about the world. And like not to be corny, but I feel like education is about so much more than just what occurs between a teacher and a student in a classroom. And so I, I think that like having a dynamic university campus requires thinking about more than just what your GPA is and what your test score is. Yeah, I completely agree. Let's wrap up the segment there. Okay, so for our case, we're doing Plyler v. Doe. Yvette, can you talk us through what this case is? Like, what are the facts? So, like we mentioned earlier, this is the case that ruled that it was unconstitutional for Texas to to try and withhold money from local school districts if it were if they were providing education to undocumented children and this was a suit that was brought by undocumented Mexican children and their parents um, and just like I said the what prompted the suit was Texas passing this law that would have allowed for the state to withhold money for education of undocumented children and also would have allowed school districts to turn undocumented students away and this was in the early 1980s and what did what would have Texas needed to prove in order to win because they lost right they did, yeah. So 
Uh, first, one thing that they could have, one way in which they could have won was, and this is an argument that they tried to make, which is that undocumented people are not persons for for 14th Amendment purposes. Uh, The language of the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, states that all persons similarly circumstanced shall be treated alike. And so there was a debate about whether or not undocumented people are persons for the, like, for within the 14th Amendment, which is wild and just shows how dehumanized undocumented immigrants are in our society. Or they could have proven that there was some rational basis apart from just straight up wanting to discriminate for creating this law. And what did the court held? The like held? Hold? <laughs> <laughs> they uh, held that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment does apply to undocumented people because the the law you know neither the logic nor the history of its passage would explain holding to the contrary because the 14th Amendment was passed during reconstruction after the Civil War and was very much intended to be about ensuring that there would never be the same amount of inequality that existed at the time of the Civil War with slavery uh, and so given that history it just didn't make sense that suddenly there would be a subclass of people that would just be excluded from it because Texas tried to make this argument about how they wanted to prioritize other students because of limited resources and the court just held that that wasn't a rational policy. They said that first there was no clear data that undocumented people were a huge economic burden on the state in the first place and then that their other argument that undocumented children are likely to flee the state of Texas after using their resources didn't have any grounding in fact either. So like fake news has been around for a long time essentially and and then also that like if you're if you are going to create some kind of discriminatory classification like this generally the state needs to prove that there are less discriminatory ways to achieve that same outcome and the court said that um, stemming that you can stem quote-unquote illegal immigration by sanctioning employers instead of withholding education from children but by the way that's still not true because the conditions that people are fleeing are really serious and so severe that and like it's very sad but the type of Uh, abuse that they would encounter in the workplace here is oftentimes less than the type of persecution they suffer in their home country. And so it doesn't really stop people from coming. It just allows employers to to take advantage of undocumented workers. It's a tangent, but I thought it was important to note. Do you want to talk about the oral arguments? Because I thought it was interesting that you listened to those. Yeah. So going back to Texas's reasoning, (laughs) yeah, I was listening to the oral arguments and I'll post the link to them on our website. And one, it's just really interesting to actually hear. But Texas was just cracking me up. Like they were trying to say that this policy was necessary in order to prevent more undocumented immigrants from entering. So it was like kind of like a preventative policy. And so they wanted to disincentivize the migration of more Mexicans. And this just like to me felt like such a scare tactic that I'm just like, how can you get up in court and actually argue this? Like this is just xenophobia at its best and trying to like just, you know, breed fear so that people become even more xenophobic within Texas. And going back to the resources issues, because, again, I, I did hear that like that bit of the Texas attorney arguing it. And so one of the justices asked the Texas attorney whether undocumented immigrants paid property taxes. And so the attorney said yes, because, yes, they do. But then they went on to have this exchange where he argued that it was really hard to know, like how much undocumented immigrants paid taxes, which was basically arguing whether it, that it's hard to know whether they contributed to funding of these schools. I thought this was such an appropriate question by the judge because, in my opinion, it made Texas look so poorly. Like, it's not hard to answer. Texas doesn't have an income tax. Well, it didn't then. I don't know about now. And they have, so they only have property tax and a sales tax, which means that's where they get their revenue to do things like fund these schools. And so the Texas attorney admitted that undocumented immigrants pay the property tax. It'd be silly to suggest that undocumented immigrants don't pay sales tax when they buy stuff because, of course, they buy stuff. And so, yes, undocumented immigrants were funding these schools. And so just to be clear, though, like across the board, in case anyone is still wondering, immigrants pay taxes. 
They contribute into the system, but they are prevented from receiving most of the benefits that they're funding. So I just thought this line of questioning was really telling. But Yvette, can you explain why the Texas court was even asking about the reasoning for the policies and why that was so important in this case? Yeah, so we thought that this case would be a good one for explaining a little bit about 14th Amendment jurisprudence, which, like we said earlier, is about um, ensuring that everyone receives equal protection under the law. And so if a state is passing a policy that someone is challenging as violating the 14th Amendment, then the court has to be able, in reviewing the state policy, the court has to be able to answer in the affirmative that the policy bears some fair relationship to a legitimate public purpose. And then just as a side note, if the classification is a suspect one, like what we were talking about, it was that, I think, last episode when we were talking about Japanese exclusion in Korematsu, then the standard of proof is higher. So if, in a case like Korematsu, the state would have to prove that the policy was precisely tailored to serve a compelling government interest, as opposed to just having a fit, some fair relationship to a legitimate public purpose. That was why they were debating, like, oh, what is what is this legitimate public purpose? Is it a legitimate public purpose to prioritize other students over undocumented students? You know, is it a is it a legitimate public purpose to want to deter undocumented people from immigrating into the U.S.? Um, and ultimately, the court felt like none of the proffered reasons that Texas gave were really legitimate public purposes. Did you want to go further into that, like more about Texas argument and like what you found from listening to the oral argument? Yeah. So Texas's argument, I thought, was super telling of like the tactics and strategies that we continue to see today. And I guess it wasn't that long ago. But so during oral arguments and in their brief, Texas was making the argument like Yvette, you mentioned this earlier, that they were doing this for the benefit of the other students who were receiving less benefits because there were so many undocumented students. And so specifically, like the students that they were mentioning were Mexican-American students. So they argued that the school districts most impacted by undocumented students were predominantly Mexican-American neighborhoods. And I found this so interesting because it's such a tact like it's it's a tactic that we see today. Right. Like I've heard. Well, okay, so folks will argue something like that is for a person of color benefit and they'll use another marginalized group to kind of like argue against why we should have it and so for example like I've heard this most recently and I think like the most just because of of my community about in the context of DACA students so with DACA students I've I've heard quite a few DACA recipients say that they they're used as like pawns against getting some sort of like legal protection or legal status for undocumented adults so like their parents and they feel like they're just used to in the middle right like they're they're a bargaining chip and so that just reminded me of this like what texas was doing in this argument because it's just we can't fall for this trick of of having white people place a marginalized group against another one I totally agree. I think that's so important, especially there are a lot of conversations right now about saving DACA, but I think it's also important to highlight those other narratives of how DACA DACA recipients can be used to throw other undocumented immigrants under the bus. Yeah. Wait, so Yvette, from this case, did it come out that education is a fundamental right? No. (laughs) So, because if it was, then the government would have needed to prove that the, the, uh, the, the policy that they were trying to enact was to serve a compelling government interest, not just a rational one, like I was mentioning earlier. And I think that that's actually one of the sadder aspects of this case, or the more this wrong aspect of this case, that uh, they, they didn't hold that education as a fundamental right. Um, and I think it's strange, actually, because a lot of the reasoning would make you think that they would think it's a, it's a fundamental right, because they talk about how how negatively impacted undocumented children would be if they were not be, not to be allowed to go to public education. All, the, all that the court said was that it was really important, but no, it's not a fundamental right. So I didn't, full disclosure, I didn't finish reading the case. So what else was in their reasoning that I should know? I guess like it's appropriate that we brought up DACA because they focus on 
they focus a lot on the fact that undocumented children are in this position through no fault of their own. And it's just like that that is what the DACA reasoning is in many ways. And so the DACA reasoning, the reasoning for passing DACA was present even back then. But again, I think that's why we need to be mindful of how um, their narrative around DACA can be used to throw other immigrants under the bus because then well so if undocumented children are in no position are in this position through no fault of their own does that mean that adults who come here have fault have blame that's so insidious (laughs) i know i know we can't have any nice things but just as we're wrapping up were there any of the other questions are there were there other questions that stood out to you from oral arguments because i didn't hear the oral arguments so i'm also curious about what what shenanigans went on in the courtroom Yeah. So one of the highlights for me and by highlights, I'm being like sarcastic was one of the justices. I I couldn't tell who because I can't I don't recognize their voices, but they basically asked like they asked the Texas attorney why Texans couldn't just have all these children and families deported. And so Texas explained that the federal government just doesn't have the resources to do it. And some other justices jumped in and they kind of had this conversation. But basically, like the justices were saying well, this isn't just anyone make, like giving information on undocumented children. Like this would be the state, like a state government giving this information to the federal government. And it was just to me, like I was just shocked that here are these judges who are trying to justices who are trying to decide whether this they should allow this the lack of education for undocumented children and their one of their thoughts is like well why don't we just deport them like that's just such another example of how the folks deciding these cases are so so removed from the communities that it actually impacts like i was shocked when i heard this line of questioning i was like deportation for like how do you think that's okay over not giving them education like it just how does this even occur to you i don't know i was just i was really bothered by that yeah it just seems like the justices like some of the justices also don't understand the citizenship process or immigration enforcement in general yeah they also asked about that they were just like how does one become documented they were just so hung up on like what's documented and undocumented and like the texas attorney themselves was just like oh, they must be asking me about how we as like a school district, like go through the documentation process to see if they're going to let someone into our school. And like, I they literally met, like, how does one get citizenship? It was, I don't know, I would have felt that was embarrassing, but I'm not them. So yeah, I just think that makes it clear to me how, like, people might not know that actually, I th- none of the Supreme Court justices have probably have ever presided over an immigration court and that's because immigration court is presided over by administrative law judges who are distinct from title three judges which is what they are in case you're surprised it's why they would have such little knowledge like Cynthia's mentioning you know being in California I think we hear a lot of a lot of people talking shit about Texas, about how like Texas has ignorant policies. So, do you, are were you shocked that this occurred in Texas? No, but I'll also admit that I'm constantly talking shit about Texas all yeah, the time. Me, yeah, me too. But <laughs> but no, I'm not shocked because it happened in California like after this case. So this happened in 1981, right? In 1994, 13 years after this, California voters, so not the legislature, like us California voters passed Proposition 187, which was known as Save Our State, which is super problematic. Like we could stop there and go into that, but I'll go on. And so that proposition said that illegal immigrants could not use public education non-emergency healthcare and other social services and the proposition included that state and local agencies had to report anyone they suspected of being an illegal immigrant to the state a department of justice and to immigration and naturalization services and like again anyone they suspected of being an illegal immigrant not someone who for some reason they found out was but someone they just suspected so again super problematic 
And yeah, this was challenged in court and it was found to be unconstitutional. But like this happened in 1994. Like I was alive. This was within my lifetime. I'm pretty young and in California. Yeah, I think um, it's important, especially as Californians, to recognize the racist history of our state. And the apart from Prop 187, there's also Prop 227, which I wrote my senior thesis about. And it was essentially a ban on bilingual education. I'm not going to go into the details, but in order for a person to fluently learn a second language, they have to have instruction and support in their native language. This is scientifically proven by many, many studies. And even then, um, they banned instruction in languages other than English unless schools applied for waivers. So they made it the default that a school wouldn't have second language instruction past a certain amount of time that wasn't sufficient. And um, that law actually wasn't overturned until last year. Yeah, let's let's end on that. Let's give Californians and Texans and everyone else something to think about. Okay, so for our current event, Yvette, can you tell us what was going on in Arizona? Why there was an ethnic studies ban? Like, what what was going on? Yeah, so for those who weren't aware, Arizona implemented a ban of ethnic studies, um, which was inspired by uh, the a Tucson school district that had a Mexican American studies program that had classes that of history, art, and literature that basically focused on the contributions of Mexican Americans in those areas throughout history. And uh, a superintendent um, was very upset that, about this program and felt like it was encouraging hate. And so he passed a law that banned ethnic studies it um the specifics of it were that it didn't allow any programming that was directed towards a specific ethnicity and uh the the students who were challenging it were arguing that the ban violated the first and 14th amendment rights of students also did were you telling me about some something like this was also a response to dolores huerta (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I think we're going to post the the decision on our Cerebona's website because it's worth a read. Um, there's a lot of really good tea in there about the backstory to this. So one of the there's like a bunch of little events that really made the specific superintendent upset about the Mexican-American studies program. And one of them was that Dolores Huerta in a speech said Republicans hate Latinos. Um, <laughs> and I think also like... I didn't look up this history, but I feel like, I mean, whatever, you could pick any any point in Arizona history and make that statement and have it be accurate. But anyways, um, and then so a Latina Republican made a counter speech about why she's a proud Latina Republican at the Tucson High School. And uh, students protested. They wore tape over their mouths. They turned their backs and raised their fists up during her speech. And the superintendent of instruction, Horn, thought that this was, quote unquote, rude and that it was a product of teachers' ethnic studies courses because they were teaching kids to, quote unquote, get in people's faces. (laughs) I think this is really hilarious. (laughs) And he's so scared. He's so scared of these high school students um, of their nonviolent protests. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I was really tickled by a lot of the things that like frightened him. But before we go on to more of that, can we can you tell us a little bit more about like what's the ethnic story, ethnic studies class that they were like just more details about that? Yeah, so um, they I think first just to go into a little bit about the history of it, of like why this program was even in place. Actually, in 1974, black and Latino students brought Latinx students brought a desegregation action against the school district of Tucson, and then the court ordered a dis- uh, the district to remedy their BS, essentially, and part of the remedy was that they needed to implement a Mexican-American studies program. So, like, this, it's just, this was a product of a long and hard-fought battle previously, which I think is also really upsetting. Like, can't you just let us have our wins? No, they cannot. Yeah, obviously not. I think it's just, like, what I mentioned before, that, um... It, it helps kids see themselves and their families and the things that they're learning. Um, 
and the outcomes are really good. Like the they did it so like not all Mexican American students participated. It was voluntary, and then of the ones who did, there were higher percentages of of them graduating from high school, and then they also passed standardized tests in higher proportions. So it was it was a good program. Um, there really was no reason to to ban it except for being afraid of of Latinx people feeling pride in themselves. It was a it was a district court of Arizona and they held that the state of Arizona showed discriminatory discriminatory intent when it banned the Mexican American Studies program. And uh, so, yeah, this is specifically about the Tucson Unified School District. Um, so, yeah, now that we've covered the holding, the history, and the context, um, we wanted to talk a little bit more about what we feel the intent behind the ban is. So, Cynthia, what, what do you think was the reason why this Superintendent Horn wanted to pass this bill so badly? So, I, I think that history... And knowing your history is like a really important part of feeling empowered and understanding yourself. Just without history, I think it's hard to understand your place in the world. And I think clearly y'all see me deal with this all the time because I, I, I struggle with whether I'm a part of the United States or not. But on the flip side of that, I also think history is power. I, like, I really, really believe it's power. So who gets to tell history that really defines the like the reality of today, right? Like if we're just, yeah, if we're whatever we're told about the past makes helps inform the decisions we make today. And so I just really think the intent behind this ban was to disempower Latinx communities, to, to not make them feel like they're part of this history, this legacy of just doing really cool stuff, really impressive stuff. And I thought, this conversation was particularly timely for me because I just recently heard about, I don't remember where, but I'll find the book and I'll post it again on the website. But I was, I heard about this book that just came out that is all about, it's just convincing Latinx communities. And specifically, I think in this specific book, Mexican Americans, but convincing Mexican Americans to stop apologizing for being here and not sometimes literally apologizing, but most of the time, just like the manifestations of that. And the book is, about Mexican Mexican Americans and it's a narrative of how we're a part of this history. So it goes into like the contributions that we've done here and just how we've shaped the society. And I I felt like that was important because like I yeah, like I said, it's important. But one of the other things I was thinking about too that this book just reminded me of and this whole conversation is that white people could also use learning this history so my roommate at Stanford she was doing a master's in it was related to education and in one of her classes they were trying to figure out when Mexicans were allowed into public schools and universities and they didn't know the history they they couldn't answer it that the folks in that classroom couldn't answer it but one woman literally asked like when Mexicans started arriving in California, which to me is just so ignorant. Like one, you're at Stanford. And so you had to read some books, I imagine, as a forced part of your curriculum. But to ask this question, like just shows to me that we're not learning this in history, like in our normal, regular history classes. So these classes are so important. They're just filling such huge gaps. Yeah, I think a lot of people are really unaware of how the southwestern part of the United States was a part of Mexico and then was ceded to the U.S. through was it the Louisiana Purchase. I forget what it was, but I think a lot of people just like really don't know that. And so as far as like why I think that, why I, why I think the Superintendent Horn wanted to pass this law is that I think from white people specifically, there's this strange, like, not wanting Latinx people to be proud of themselves. Like, I, I've i also, like, recently was having a conversation with someone who's describing their workplace, and it was, like, it's very ironic because the organization was dedicated to uh, serving the Latinx community, and, and the idea about uh, behind it was Latinx people 
serving the Latinx community, providing them legal services. And the person said that they felt like many of the white people at, at this point in history, most of the lawyers that worked there were white. And she said that she felt like the lawyers there were actively anti-Chicano pride, that they were hostile to the idea of Chicano pride. So that's something to sit with in process because, right, and like it's a whole other conversation about the nonprofit industrial complex, but I don't know, there's just this idea that like being proud of Latinx culture is like quote-unquote anti-Western. And we really have to question why that is. Like, anti-Western is also a phrase that's used by a lot of alt-right people. And so this is all this discussion is all just still very relevant today. And I think it's just weird. And maybe this is like a part of the kind of the individualistic thinking that goes with capitalism. But I feel like white people operate as if this world is zero sum. Like, if me having pride in my culture, it means that I'm taking away pride from your culture. And it's just... It's just not true. Like, why can't you just be quiet and let someone have their moment? Yeah, I can't even imagine how that, like, anti-Chicano sentiment manifested itself. But what a toxic work environment. This is why people of color really need to prioritize our own wellness and Mm -hmm. say bye to Mm -hmm. that environment. Because that's so toxic. It is. In a workplace where you're supposed to be serving people of your community, Right. There's like, yeah, there's layers of hostility that um, I think people don't realize we have to live through in in white supremacy. Yeah. And also, like, okay, to be honest, talking about toxic workplaces, the classroom that the the, I was reading an interview with the folks who wrote the legislation and the the environment that they described just sounded so cool. Like, I wish that had been my classroom. (laughs) Like they were reading pedagogy of the oppressed and they had a poster of Che Guevara and then one of the again one of the writers of the legislation he was complaining that the teachers were like teaching a simplistic application of Karl Marx where it's like it's just all of history is the oppressed versus the oppressor which I think is really accurate in a lot of Mm. ways (laughs) but I was just like okay I really wish I was learning Karl Marx in high school I wish there was a poster of Che Guevara like this sounds awesome and again this sounds like a healthy environment for me to be in but instead no like I grew up in a completely different environment yeah and yeah I mean we were just saying that like this is why we need ethnic studies classes right um so should we go into that now yeah I think I mentioned this earlier and I think again this is just like a theme of our life right where white is the norm it's seen as the default so when we're taking u.s history right when we're taking history we're always just learning about white men that's literally all we learn about like i don't ever remember signing up to learn the history of white men in the u.s but that's all i've learned and it if it wasn't for that we wouldn't need ethnic studies, right? Ethnic studies, everything you learn there would be actually part of regular ass history. But no, because white people have been selfish with what they consider history. We've had to create our own courses, which I think is like, yeah, good for us. Like we are going to learn our history. We're going to teach ourselves our own history if you're not going to include us in part of the regular curriculum. Exactly. And I, yeah, it's ethnic studies is remedying the shortcomings that exist in our curriculum and i think also it's important to push back on what the superintendent's arguments were that there shouldn't be courses that are primarily focused on one ethnicity um, because that analysis is really devoid of context like you said it ignores the history of a curriculum that totally excludes the contributions of latinx people and you know in this case mexican-americans like why do we need classes that focus on one ethnicity? Because we, you haven't, you completely excluded that content from the curriculum. And yeah, and just again, like being proud of myself isn't hating on you. That's just such a white person way of thinking. And I think that they're very sensitive about like losing their grip on this false superiority narrative. And like, I think, I feel like it's a very visceral reaction to facing the facts of like, White superiority is a lie. There have been vibrant and beautiful leaders who have resisted white supremacy for decades and centuries. And, you know, it doesn't feed into your narrative. And so you don't want kids to learn it. And that's really upsetting. Yeah. Eva, I know I so in my 
undergrad, I didn't take as many classes in ethnic studies as I should have and would have liked, but I know you did and that they, you've mentioned them last episode about how meaningful they were to you. Can you like, what classes did you take and why were they so meaningful? Yeah. So I think the, at Yale, the like what would be ethnic studies was called ethnicity, race, and migration. And, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite classes that I took, um, that was cross-sitted in that department was Latino, Latina sexuality. And it was, I learned about the history of queer Latinx communities, which is awesome because having grown up Catholic and being educated in private Catholic schools, um, for high school and middle school, I, like, that was something that I had been made completely unaware of and so it was just really dope to learn about queerness in the latinx community and then also the classes in the afm department as well like i took a class with oh the african-american studies department as well yeah i'm just like broadening the the discussion not just like specifically around ethnic studies but also um like just departments like the african-american studies department too i took a class with kathleen cleaver who's a former black panther and learned about the leadership of black women throughout the history of the u.s dating back um to slavery and uh, both of those classes just um allowed me to think about it they were both classes that centered on uh, the histories of marginalized people queer latinx people and black women and just yeah helped me think about those communities differently when we have some time you totally have to give me your syllabi from those classes and your readings yes (laughs) yes yes I think to end I wanted to mention that quote that I that I read to you that uh, was a proverb um that because I think this sums up why ethnic studies is important about why it's important to have histories written from the perspectives of these people and the it's until the lion learns to write every story will glorify the hunter okay so moving on to our last segment so we wanted to do this segment instead of recommendations um, because we wanted to devote some time to uh, our the listener emails that we receive. Uh, we love the comments on the Instagram and the SoundCloud and the listener emails that you send us, and we want you all to continue engaging with us. And so kind of to encourage that more, we wanted to do a little segment where we respond to an email that we receive from a listener. Yeah, so please write us emails if you have any questions for us or just anything like that. You can email us at cerebronas.com pod at gmail.com so cerebronas.pod at gmail.com and you can also submit it through our website at cerebronas.com so uh we're gonna read the email and then we're not gonna actually say who it was from because we didn't ask beforehand but here's the email I've been going back and forth about whether to say something about this, but in your last episode, you told the story of a liberal woman who, at an election watch party, confessed that she had found out her parents had voted for Trump. You were so angry that she could admit this, and I've been thinking about this reaction ever since. I don't know this woman or the tone or context in which she shared this, but I do know that it can be profoundly difficult to make an ideological break with your parents. You may still have their love, but they no longer feel they can understand you. A distance grows and things will never be quite the same. When this happens, you start looking for a new family, a new community. And where do you go if this new community shuts you out because of who your parents are? The only way for our side to grow is if we welcome those who have surrendered old beliefs and come from different backgrounds. Otherwise, we are only talking to ourselves. Yeah, so we, uh, just as like as an initial point, I think Yvette, and Yvette, you can clarify if I mis- misspeak, but I think the main point of that example was just that you know not who her parents were but the lack of accountability yeah and then I just responded by saying like I know what it's like to challenge your parents like I know what you're talking about because I challenge my mom's anti-blackness semi-regularly and end up in a fight or upset every time and 
you know, like Cynthia just said, what we're upset about is a person with a lot, a lot of privilege not participating fully in an accountability process. And it's just unacceptable that people with more privilege than me aren't doing more than I am. And, And then just also, like, I hear what you're saying about how it can be hard to break from these communities that love you but that hold oppressive views but also white feelings can't be centered you know like if you if you want to enter a a political community space that's about collective liberation you're it's not that you're not going to be able to process your feelings you need to on your own through a therapist or journal or like with your other white friends but your feelings can't be centered in that community because then that would just be perpetuating white supremacy and the dynamics that exist within it and then also just like that it's disingenuous and then what also we were pointing out it's disingenuous to say that you didn't know your parents had voted for trump like his views are so extreme that there had to have been signs that this person didn't see or like didn't do the work of calling their parents in at all those previous steps beforehand and then let it get to the point where they voted for trump yeah so it was it was just that the the person was saying, "Oh, I was so shocked that my parents voted for Trump. I'm so disheartened." But then it's like that's that's not true. How like she she must have known that her parents were going to vote for Trump. So, to our listener, I hope that helps clarify. And just anyone else who was also wondering about that or having a similar reaction to that segment. But like we said, we love the listener emails, so please um, send more of them. And I guess in place of a regular recommendation, we recommend that you send us an email with your thoughts or reactions to our previous episodes or this current episode. So thank y'all for listening to another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps with visibility. And uh, if you know anyone who's thinking about law school or applying to law school, please let them know about us and our social media. We hope to keep posting resources um, about that specific experience and we want to make sure it's reaching the right folks. Yvette, as always, it was lovely to speak with you. Yep, it was lovely to be in dialogue with you. Hey, yo, my dogs go heat, control the whole street And when it's time to bust, they don't get cold feet